This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking. It's a show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi. Hey, look, today we're going to sit down and talk with United States District Judge William Alsop of the Northern District of California about his newest addition to his catalog of works on the civil rights era. One over is the story of a boy born here in Mississippi to parents who believed in segregation and that boy's journey over the to the right side of history. Plus, Michelle and I will talk about the latest headlines in this weekend's roundup. And also, too, if you'd like to be part of the show, give us a call. It's 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or you can email us at marshall at mpbonline.org. Stay tuned. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. Can't get to a radio? Well, don't worry. MPB Think and Music Radio are available online and on our MPB public media app. It's simple. Just log on to our website at mpbonline.org to get started. This is MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey on MPB Think Radio. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. Happy Monday. There's a strange yellow thing in the sky. I think it's called the sun. Don't stare at it. It'll definitely hurt your vision, but we're glad it's there. And I'm glad you are here because we have another great show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi. Hey, look, today our guest has dedicated his life to transforming the nation's consciousness on race through law, social science, and the arts. Judge William Alsop is here to talk about his new memoir, One Over. It's a story about a boy born here in Mississippi to parents who believed in segregation and that boy's journey during the epic events of the civil rights movement over to the right side of history. Hey, we're going to also uh, talk to the judge in just a minute. Of course, we have everything that's been going on this weekend because a lot of things have been going on around Mississippi, and we'll talk about those latest headlines, too, in our weekend roundup. And let me just start with this. If you if you woke up this morning with your own roof over your head, um, think of our friends up in Columbus and a couple other spots around the state, too. Uh, we all know that when there is a tornado in Mississippi, it's a there's but the grace of God moment for all of us. Um, I, I wrote a book a few years ago called Chainsaws and Casseroles, and the point of Chainsaws and Casseroles is not a cookbook. It is the fact that if you go through something like our friends in Columbus are going through right now, before you can get out of the rubble, there's usually a church van in your front yard full of people with chainsaws and casseroles because they're going to feed you and they're going to cut the tree off your roof. And we saw a lot of that going on up in Columbus over the weekend. Um, A friend of mine, Slim Smith, is a columnist up at the Columbus Dispatch. And, you know, he was out and out and about on Sunday trying to get, pick up stories and hear from folks. And he just basically said, Marshall, he said, look, this this tornado was particularly cruel that it cut through the absolutely some of the poorest sections of Columbus. And it hurt people that really did not have much. And so, you know, I mean, when something like that happens and, of course, it was rough all over the state. I was driving to New Orleans in it and got into some of the storms and it was tough. And so I'm just you know, it's so sad that anybody lost their life. Apparently, there was a 20-minute warning from the Weather Service on the tornado coming, and I wanted to say congratulations and thank you for that because that probably ended up saving a lot of lives, too, because you knew it was coming. But it, it's tough, and you, you just that's part of Mississippi in the springtime. It's something that we all live, but we know that when it happens to somebody else, it could have happened to us, and I think that's why we are always so motivated to get up and get busy, too. And um, I want to touch on this real quick, too. I found out this morning that a high school classmate of mine passed from cancer. Uh, she had done everything in her power to live. She loved her boys, and basically with her whole heart, and she still lost the battle. Look, it's a sobering way to start the week, and uh, frankly, it's one that had me feeling sad and a bit contemplative, too. See, I had cancer a few years ago, but it was caught early, And but I know it can come back at any time. So anytime this happens, I kind of get hypersensitive about it, particularly when I know somebody who gets the disease. And I am this morning, trust me. It's hard not to be a little bit upset, and I'm thinking about Diane and about how bad she wanted to live. And Diane is just like so many of my friends who have died from the disease. And so I think we all just take each breath for granted. Life is so fickle. You know, I mentioned that I drove to New Orleans, and I came back that night, Saturday night. We went down to go see LeBron. That was fun. 
I, we drove past that horrible wreck. There was a wreck here in Jackson on, on I-55 near Lakeland Drive. For, it was a car full of kids, and Michelle and I are going to talk about that in just a second, how terrifying that is as a parent, because a lot of times our kids get in the cars with people, and you just never know, and they got in a terrible wreck. A 15-year-old child lost his life, and, and several of the others were very, very injured badly. Look, I went past it. I saw the wreckage, and, and I knew that something bad had happened on that. You just could tell. And so I just want to say this morning I was praying for the parents because, you know, life is just that fickle. And I'm not trying to bum you out. It's just me thinking out loud about a few things. Um, it's the stupid little things I get outraged about every morning. And then I leave the big things in my life that I should be outraged about untouched. And, and this morning I was looking at my phone screen and realizing how much of my life is wasted looking at a screen. That's not good either. But all I can do is breathe and be better in this moment. And I prayed for Diane's husband and two sons because, I mean, I know they're hurting this morning. And the dad's probably just thinking, what am I going to do right now? Um, I lost touch with her after high school, but I got to know her again and followed her story since she got sick. And I liked her in high school, but I really grew to admire her as she fought her last battle. So it's Monday morning. If you have a dream, chase that dream. And, and if you have a relationship that is strained, mend it. If you have a mess to clean up, get busy and clean it up. Don't take a darn thing for granted. And I could could be the last mistake you ever make. And it's just something we all need to remember that we just sometimes we just sleepwalk through our lives. Michelle, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Caffeinated. Uh, me too. I right now. <laughs> caffeinated. I mean, I'm just ready to go on a Monday. So. Yeah. Mondays are, you know, some people used to say uh, Mondays are hard. You see the memes and things like that. But I love me. Look at, yeah. I'm not going to hate one seventh of my life. Exactly. We look at Mondays as beginning of a new work week. So I like it. And our show is on Monday. So, of course, I love Mondays. Well, good. I'm glad you don't hate Mondays because that would mean you did not like our show. Exactly. That would exactly. make me sad. You did watch the uh, Oscars last night. Uh, actually, I didn't. What's funny what? is that uh-uh, I, I did. I had a, which no, is no, rare. No. Which Listen, is rare, but I did. The reason why I watched the Oscars, I recorded the Oscars. Uh-huh. I watched the pre-show, but I had an event to go to that started at five. Uh-huh. So um, you had to I, make money. No, well, no. Oh. <laughs> it was a musical event. Okay. So uh, I went to that and recorded the rest. But when I got home, I made sure to. Uh, see who won and things like that. Yeah. That's what I wanted to talk about. I'm so excited about the winners. Um, shocked about a few, but not shocked about some. Right. Uh, a lot of people were thinking Black Panther would take the um, big titles, you know, home. They got some, you know, of course, um, uh, creatively, they, they won a lot of awards on that end. I'm glad about that. They got a lot more than normally a superhero movie would get, though. Right. But it was a very good movie, yeah, well, so I mean, I mean, in it its own right. Right, yeah. but Green Book, uh, Best Picture. Yeah, Spike Lee's not real happy about it. No, but, well, I mean, He's, I'm not going to say. I know. He he said, every time there's a movie about somebody driving somebody, I lose. Okay, had <laughs> a couple, he had a couple but drinks. But he did win. He did finally not, win his Oscar. Uh, I mean, he won Adapted Screenplay. Yeah. And so that says something to uh, his efforts and his work. Uh, a lot of people say it was a long time coming again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glenn Close, wah, wah, wah. You know, well, she I- looked like an Oscar. <laughs> well, she did. I love her. Uh, she's infectious to me. She does not and, age. No. Um, I, I've i always admired her, but like she said, it was, she said it was bittersweet. She said, if I win, my winning streak of not winning <laughs> yeah, no. would be go- over. And so she's like, I'm kind of torn about it. I want to win, but I don't. She's I, like this generation's Susan Lucci. Exactly. So you know. she didn't take that one home. Um, again, Let, like okay. Said, Lady Gaga. By the way, have you seen the performance with her and Bradley Cooper? Yeah, the show. If, they yeah, got any cl- if they'd have gotten any closer, they. I mean, I hope they had breath mints. We'll just put it that way. I mean, it was like, Ugh. But you know what's funny? I love, a lot of people were saying before the movie came out, can she pull this off? They were thinking yeah, about Beyonce did. in that role, and I mm-hmm. just fell off my chair. I was like, no. They picked, I'm glad he picked the right person to play um, this part. This movie has been adapted, what, three times, I believe? Yeah, it is. They, um, um, Judy Garland mm-hmm, and then Barbara Streisand mm-hmm. and Chris so Christopherson. And- when I look at the greats, that played this role, mm-hmm. they picked the right person. No, she did great. I mean, it's, it's, and I tell you what, um, if you saw her acceptance speech, mm-hmm. it was a home run. Uh, and I, and, Don't give too much away because I'm going to watch it tonight. No. <laughs> okay, she won, okay? But I, I'll just say this, and I'm going to give this away because her acceptance speech, you know, because a lot of people are like, oh, I don't watch Oscars because it's too political. Well, usually people are mad because it's political because it's politics against what they think. Well, it's a platform, so yeah, use I mean, your I'm platform. sorry, man. When you got like three zillion people watching yeah. it, it's... Use it, your mean, platform. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. But, I, you know, I don't care. I mean, I, because I am political. I mean, I do that for a living. I throw out cartoons. But her speech last night was a little bit different. It was very strong, you know, and I, I was just thinking somewhere there's in the world, there's a child that's watching this mm-hmm. with a dream. 
game. And he or she may feel like there's too many obstacles in their way and the world's against them, but they're sitting there watching the Oscars and they just heard Lady Gaga sing a song and then win an Oscar for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then Lady Gaga gets up there and looks them in the eye saying, don't quit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I know people want entertainers to just entertain, but Lady Gaga probably just helped a kid whose star will eventually burn just as brightly as hers, and that was a good thing. Well, you know, uh, actors, actresses, you and I, anything, any platform you have, any responsibility you have, you need to use that for something and to make a change. I I believe that. That lit my Facebook up this morning, man. People are like, I don't want to hear. I tell you what, here's where I kind of think about it. I, I went to a concert. There was a group that Amy and I really love, and we went to go see them, and they just basically screamed at us about poli- about their politics. And the thing was, we agreed with their politics, but we were just kind of like going, okay, that's – I don't mind, though, if a politi- – if a, if a actor or actress or anybody, athlete or anybody else, like LeBron. Well, LeBron, speaking of LeBron, but what he did with the school. You know, I mean, put your money and your effort where your, your heart is, and I'm okay with that. It works out great. Uh, speaking of LeBron – Took my boys down to go see the Pelicans play the Lakers. Okay, the Lakers are just not very good this year. Uh, but LeBron was there, and, you know, hey, get a chance for my son to be able to tell his kid, yeah, I saw one of the greatest of all time. So I thought that was pretty cool. But it's always fun to go to New Orleans. And of course, we're right in the middle of parade season. And last night, um, I mean, not Saturday night, of course, as we had the thunderstorms up here, they had one come through New Orleans as well. And my phone went off, like sometimes your phone does go off, and, you know, there's a weather warning. And the National Weather Service, it was kind of interesting. You can always tell you're in New Orleans. It was basically telling parade participants they should seek cover. And I personally thought it should have said something like this. This is the National Weather Service. Go refill your drinks and come back in about 15 minutes. And I think that would have probably been a little bit more accurate. But it was, like I said, it was fun. And, and afterwards, of course, you know, getting out of the parking garage and driving around New Orleans in the pouring rain and everybody, the pedestrians all had about 17 hurricanes. And so they're wandering into the middle of the street. By the time I got on the interstate, I was just kind of like, okay. I was like, I'm just so glad that I only have three more hours to drive to get up there. Cause it was just like, Oh my gosh, you know, getting out of new Orleans is like without running over somebody. But what happened was the Lakers bus was leaving the arena. So I pulled in right behind the bus and followed them out with a police escort. Smart like that. That was very smart. <laughs> yeah. A lot, a lot of rain though. And it, and by the way, um, I want to throw out a uh, heartfelt thought to my folks up in, in Oxford. Y'all had a rough weekend and I'm not just talking about the, the rally. Um, you had a water main break, so you lost all your water. You had the rally going on up there, which, by the way, you know, that rally happened because of Ole Miss's past, but it failed because of Ole Miss's present. I was so proud of the students, not just the, the counter-protesters. I'm talking about the students that, even though there were threats to them, to their personal safety that was coming over Facebook Live, and, I mean, my, you know, I mean, I had, I saw some of the videos. They still went to class. They still pushed forward. They said, you know what? We're not going to let hate slow us down. And I was so proud of the students. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that, you know, they say love wins, but I think hate lost. And it was really a great weekend on that. But, I mean, it's like with all the rain North Mississippi had, I mean, you had dams that are about to fail. I mean, you know, here we are down in Jackson. We had like a couple inches of rain all week. They had a couple inches of rain in like an hour. I mean, all over the Delta. And, I mean, I'm feeling sorry for the farmers right now, too, because this is just like, how are you ever going to get a crop in the ground if it's like three feet underwater? You know, it's like everything is flooded. So, um, but it was a tough weekend up in Oxford. But at the end of the day, I think it turned out to be a very good thing for it, just because how everything turned out. I, I agree. And also, um, a good segue into our guest today. He can actually speak on that. And he oh, was, all kinds of things. And think about this. This is 2019. And back in his time, things like this was happening right. so i mean the question uh, you could throw out the question have we changed have things gotten better uh yes or no you know a lot of people may have comments or uh questions about that but we we welcome your comments and questions today with our guest and uh, to the uh issues that are at hand yeah we always want to hear from you and of course that number is 877 mpb ring that's 877 our guest coming up is Judge William Alsop, and I tell you what, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to talk to him. Stay tuned. This is Now You're Talking only on MPB Think Radio.
Whether traveling through Oxford or Tupelo, stuck in traffic in Jackson or Meridian, or cruising along the coast in Biloxi or Ocean Springs, MPB goes with listeners wherever they go. Your company's message can go along, too. Go to mpbonline.org slash underwriting to find out how. For moments in black history, we salute Fannie Lou Hamer. The civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer is known for her words, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, during her testimony at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. But the Mississippi native would also lend her voice to many freedom songs during the civil rights movement. Fannie Lou Hamer was a true champion of the people, and we salute her leadership. This has been MPB's Moment in Black History. The information presented on this program is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information presented does not create any type of relationship between the hosts and guests and the listening audience. Please consult an appropriate professional for guidance about your concerns. You're listening to Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. Hey, look, today we're sitting down and talking with United States District Judge and author William Alsop about his new memory, One Over. Judge, welcome to the show today. Thank you for taking the time to visit with us. Pleasure to be with you. I tell you what, we are trying to dial up some good weather for you when you come back. I mean, it's been rough this spring. I know you're from you know, you're in San Francisco. You have beautiful weather all the time, right? Well, actually, right now, no, we have a storm right out of my chamber's window, and it's been uh, well waterlogged, a waterlogged couple of months, but nothing like what you got over the last few days there in North Mississippi. I, I my heart goes out to those people who suffered. Yeah, it's been it's been tough. Look, I, I really thank you for coming in, and I mean, we're talking to us, and I'm really really excited about your new book. Um, I mean, what a great story you've got to tell. I guess. A good place to start. I mean, you were born right around the end of World War II here in Jackson. Um, t- talk about what it's like growing up in Jackson in the in the fifties and sixties. In that time, when you're growing up as a kid, you don't uh, compare yourself to the rest of the world. The, the world you are immediately around you is what you know and what you come to accept. And of course, in those days, it was there was no internet. There was very little television. We had just one station. And that came along in 1953. So uh, it was a much different world, a much more insular world uh, than we, we have today. Well, I mean, I mean, that's that's fascinating because I, I was thinking about that. Like you, you didn't have national news. You didn't have social media. You didn't have all these things to compare yourself against. You were basically growing up listening to your parents who were good people, but they had particular views that I guess we'll let you talk about in a second. And then also, too, what your preacher would say and what the the government leaders would say. So you, really, I mean, to me, it's fascinating that your viewpoint shifted from what was the norm. And I want you to tell us a little bit about that. Of course. My mom and dad were from Texas. They came there in 1940 looking for work. They spent their last dime on a watermelon. My mom was pregnant. She had a craving for watermelon. And eventually my dad did find work after the war. They grew up in Texas and accepted segregation, racial segregation as a way of life. They didn't preach it. Uh, They were both quiet, so we were lucky in that respect. But at the same time, my mom and dad taught us decency and fairness. And therein is the conflict. Right. Because as as you grow up and you begin to see the world around you and you say, that's not fair. And yet at the same time, racial segregation was the system. The Mississippi way of life was what they called it back then. The Mississippi way of life was enshrined in the law itself. So it was not just the newspapers and not just the churches. But it was also state law, uh, local law, and municipal law. So you had to ask yourself, well, it's the law. It must be right. But then on the other hand, you would say, but it's not fair. It's not decent. So that is the basic conflict that uh, tore at me and uh, and I, I think other 
a few other white kids, at least in that in that era, of trying to reconcile those two concepts. Well, Judge, what what part of town did you grow up in? Because I know you went to Provine, and you know, in that part of town, did you ever run across many African Americans? Not well. Y- yes and no. Uh, uh, the the state was forty two percent African American at the time. I think it's slightly less than that now, and. And of course, uh, you uh, uh, would would have many interactions, mostly downtown, when uh, you were walking along the same sidewalks together or shopping in the same stores together. Uh, and occasionally, there would be someone who would uh, come and uh, help us plow the field, for example. So yes, there were uh, an African American. Uh, so that would be a and uh, uh, some of the ways in which we interchanged. Uh, but for the most part, it was segregated. So I right. went to an all-white high school. It was segregated by law. Uh, every school I went to uh, up until my second year at Mississippi State was uh, segregated by law. And uh, so we did not get that uh, the kind of interchange that we should have gotten, and we, uh, but, uh, but by law we did not get. So I grew up in South Jackson on Terry Road, uh, in the working class part of town, uh, not the fancy part of town, which is the north part of town, uh, but uh, the, fans, uh, the, the, the working class part of town, uh, and near Colonial Drive and uh, Terry Road. Uh, some of your listeners might know where that is. We're talking with Judge William Alsop. His new book is coming out. It's called One Over. And, of course, it is a memoir of growing up here in Jackson and, of course, his time with the Civil Rights Moment, Movement. Your older sister, um, apparently uh, must have been pretty tough in her own right. She taught you to stand up for what was right? She was five years older, born before the war. She was the one my mom was pregnant with when she wanted the watermelon. Uh. Walana uh, was uh, uh, a fierce uh, person. She uh, was the boss uh, among the three of us children, and a, and a good one, too. I don't mean that in all in a negative way. <laughs> And and she, in 1957 or 8, somewhere in there, she had a huge fight with my dad. Uh, he was normally a quiet guy, but my older sister then in high school was taking the position that if she wanted to be friends with a black person, she could do so, and that was her right. And my dad was having none of that. He was so mad about it, and they got into a shouting match. Fortunately, it was only shouting. There was no physical part of it. And, but he did threaten to throw her out of the house. Wow. And she she stood up for herself, and she said no. Anyway, that taught me, that was, she taught me that there are times when you you should stand up for what is right. And my mom and dad taught us fairness and decency, but my older sister was the one who taught us to stand up for what is right. Yeah, I think it's kind of fascinating. I mean, you were talking about how the law had this all baked into society. Um, You actually graduated from Mississippi State, though, with a mathematics degree. At what point did you switch from thinking, oh, I'm going to math, and I want to go and change things through the law? I started out at State in 1963 intending to become a civil engineer like my dad had been. He had died when I was 15. Wow. And— and then uh, because of the civil rights movement and its influence, I and, and also because I was pretty good at debating, we, we had a, a very good small team that uh, ranked uh, with other teams across the nation back in that era. Uh, because of those two things, debating and the influence of the civil rights movement, I decided I wanted to be Atticus Finch. Uh, and I decided to go to law school. And so I wound up graduating in mathematics, but my last two years I was aiming for law school. And I, I love mathematics, there's no question about that. But I also love history, and and uh, and there was no doubt in my mind now that switching over to law was the right thing to do. Uh, but that's how it happened. It was that influence of the times that made a huge difference on the, the rest of my life. How'd you make the connection to Harvard, though? I mean, that's pretty impressive that you you landed at Harvard Law School. Well, two things. One, I, I realized uh, how how insular uh, the state was and that it would be good for me to see something outside of Mississippi. So I decided I was going to go to law school somewhere outside of the state. But in addition, we had debated 
at uh, Harvard, and I we drove all the way up there, drove all the way back. Wow. Uh, and uh, and I said, this is great. This is where I want to go to law school. So, so that's uh, that's the reason it was uh, in an indirect way. It was because of Mississippi and the debating team. That I mean, and that, I could imagine. Um, of course, you you stuck around after you graduated, and then you went ahead and you got your master's in public policy too. So at this point, you're thinking, well, you know, I can probably change things through government. Correct. Yeah. At that time, I was still am, and I suppose in a more practical way, an idealist. But at the time, I thought, Atticus Finch, I'm going to get a law degree. I'm going to do something good for society. And then when the public policy opportunity opened up at Harvard, I got an extra degree in public policy from the Kennedy School at Harvard. And again, it was all with the idea that someday I might be able to do some good uh, on the public policy front. So there we go. That's that's kind of what happened back then. Well, and I got to tell the listeners here real quick. You just talk about the math part of of your career. Um, you're one of the only people I know, one of the only judges that probably actually would learn a computer language right before you go, get into the middle of doing a, um, a a trial involving computer companies. You learned Java, didn't you? I learned enough of Java to do that case. Yeah, to be the judge in that case. Uh, the language that I really know ex- exceedingly well is an old language called Quick Basic. Mm-hmm. And any of your any of your listeners who know what that language is are rolling their eyes right now. <laughs> I am because it's really a, it's really a pretty old uh, language. But uh, with the speed of modern computers, you can do quite a lot of uh, good work with Quick Basic. And and I still stick with Quick Basic. But for that big case, it was uh, Oracle versus Google. Yeah. I uh, I did learn enough of the Java language to be able to understand what they were fighting about. So it's, it's, I would say there's some truth to that statement. We're going to take a quick break. But when we return, we'll continue our conversation with author and judge William Alsop. And stay tuned. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. MPB listeners pay attention to quality. They look for quality in their work and their daily lives. If your business cares about quality customers, look to MPB. Go to mpbonline.org slash underwriting for more information. You're listening to Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. Uh, if you're just now joining us, we've got a great guest on today. He's United States District Judge and author, William Alsop, and we're talking about his new memoir, One Over, and, of course, a pretty incredible life as well. Judge, I, I tell you, um, you graduated from Harvard, public policy, you got your law degree, you did a little bit of private practice, but you got the law clerk with a Supreme Court justice. Um, that's a pretty darn big deal. How did that come about? Justice Douglas, William O. Douglas on the Supreme Court, heard about the Kennedy School program, joint degree program, where you'd get a law degree and a public policy degree. And he decided he, he wanted to hire a law clerk to help him with his caseload who had graduated from that program. Now, at the time, there were only three of us about to graduate, so the odds became pretty good. And I wound up uh, getting the job, and I worked for Justice Douglas in the Supreme Court as his law clerk, one of his three law clerks, in 1971-72 term. What were some of the things that you learned in that year? Because I would think that that had to be an incredible experience. One of the things that I learned was the importance of the First Amendment. I had already gotten a visceral uh, visceral uh, learning from the, the, my days in Mississippi about the importance of the right of protest, but Justice Douglas helped me see the the role that the First Amendment plays in a democracy and the need for anyone who feels oppressed 
or the need for anyone who wants to get the government to redress a grievance, uh, for those people to be able to get out in the streets and to say, here is a problem, we need to fix it. That's a very important right, and it goes hand in hand with democracy in our in our country. Justice Douglas helped me to see that, and and he emphasized many times that most of the rest of the world does not have that right, and it's a precious right, and we should never take it for granted in this country. Well, I mean, you and, and particularly during that time, I mean, it was right toward the, I guess, right toward the end, or I guess it was still going on with the Vietnam War and what the protests that were going around that. So, I mean, this was, for somebody your age, this was a pretty darn important thing to make sure it was guaranteed. Correct. We had uh, not only the civil rights movement and Dr. Martin Luther King, who preached and lived by a code and creed of nonviolence, that was very important to the civil rights movement. But we also had an, uh, that, that followed by an era of protest against the Vietnam War, right. which, uh, which so it was, it was a one-two punch, so to speak, in the early 60s, and then that melded into the late 60s into the anti-war movement. So, yes, the First Amendment was front and center during the 60s. Well, you were in Boston, and then you were in D.C. How did you end up um, deciding to hang out a shingle in San Francisco? I mean, that's a pretty long drive. Correct. Uh, Well, first I went back to Mississippi and started practicing with the only little small law firm that would represent both labor unions and African Americans. Wow. Okay. His name name was Dixon Piles, and Mm -hmm. I went in with my uh, Dixon, uh, me and Danny Cupid, who is the hero of the story, really, the one-over memoir. Danny was my roommate in college, and he's now a famous lawyer in Mississippi. Danny and I went in with Dixon, but after six months, uh, we were going broke, really, and I had nothing to fall back on. So I said to my wife, I hate to say it, but in order to support the family, we got to go somewhere else because we're not making any money. And uh, I had, everything I had done was some big civil rights case against the city of Jackson, which, by the way, we ultimately did win, uh, but uh, it took a long time. And, it, and no, no fees were coming in, and I had mortgage payments to make. So uh, with great heartache, uh, I decided to leave and come to San Francisco, where my, my wife had been from. So that was the uh, that's how I came out here. Yeah, but to say you were brain drained before brain drain was cool. Here. Yeah, sort of, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, in some ways I regret it, but it worked out great because I've got a tremendous job that I am very privileged to have. So, yeah, it worked out great to be a U.S. district judge in San Francisco is a is a very good outcome. Yeah, and you've done it nearly for 20 years, too, because I remember about, it was, what, around 1999 when you were nominated. So, I mean, Correct. gosh, That's it, right. that went by fast. You said it. You said it. Uh, it, did, it did go by fast. Well, talk a little bit more about your childhood. Of course, you said you had an older sister. Were you, were you two the only kids? No, we had a, I have a younger sister, and she uh, and I were the students in the kindergarten class that my older sister set up. Okay. Uh, I think the uh, in my childhood, uh, let me focus uh, on the at Mississippi State. Okay. I think the, the the thing that I'm most proud of is a is the work that Danny, the fellow I mentioned, uh, yeah. Danny Cupid, C U P I T, and I did to bring the first African American ever to give a speech at any traditionally white college in Mississippi. Believe it or not, in 19 in the 60s, up until 1966, no black had ever given a speech at a white campus. That's, that is, that's hard to believe, but that's true. And Danny and I wanted to have Aaron Henry, who was president of the state NAACP, come and give a speech. I was president of the Campus Y, and he was president of the Young Democrats. So we applied you know, under the regulations you had to apply to bring in a speaker. So we applied, and, and we were turned down. Uh, and on the ground un, under this regulation that he was too controversial. Well, we knew that wasn't the real reason. Right. The real reason was that he was African-American, 
and the state board of trustees, there's no way they were going to allow that. So I wrote a letter to the President Giles and saying that we were going to bring a lawsuit. Now, this lawsuit was Danny's idea, and Danny had worked it up and gotten a lawyer for us over in Greenville. And the uh, so, so we had decided it took, some, took a while for me to work up the courage to do this, but I, went, I was going to go along with Danny on this and join the lawsuit. But I wanted to write a letter explaining ourselves, hoping that uh, – hoping that we could at least do it in a genteel way. So I wrote a letter to the President Childs, and he gave the letter to the state board, and the state board backed down and allowed Aaron Henry to come. So in January 1967, Aaron Henry came and gave a speech to the students and faculty at Mississippi State. It was on the subject of the Voting Rights Act, of 1965, which was then only two years old. And he he gave some forecasts about what impact that law would have on voting in Mississippi, all of which predictions turned out to be true. So that was a very good speech. In fact, we had so many people. We The, the YMCA auditorium would hold 400, but 750 people wanted to get in to hear it. It, it had been so controversial. So we had to move it over at the last minute to the Lee Hall, where that could accommodate that number. It was a tremendous speech. And so uh, at the end, uh, there were a small group of faculty on the front row center. And at the end, uh, those four faculty members stood and to give a standing ovation. And slowly, the rest of the audience uh, stood and clapped and gave a standing ovation. It was all peaceful. It was just the way a dialogue should be in an era of tumult. And uh, it went down in history as a great a great moment uh, for Mississippi State. And so that was the first time an African-American had ever given a speech at a traditionally white campus in Mississippi. And uh, I am proud of that. I am proud that we had the courage to stand up to the state of Mississippi and insist on it. Danny went on when he was in law school. Danny Cupid went on in law school to bring a, a, a lawsuit to get that regulation declared invalid, and he succeeded in that. The uh, federal court in Greenville declared the statute, the, I'm sorry, the regulation to be unconstitutional. And so Danny is the real hero of that story. By the way, Danny is the only one of us who wound up giving his entire life and career to to the state of Mississippi. The rest of us found excuses to leave, but but uh, he stayed there and became one of the most successful lawyers in America. So there we are. That's he's the real hero of the story. Won over. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, it's that ban. I remember that was a big reason why a lot of the civil rights groups went to Tougaloo, right? Because even the historically black universities couldn't have meetings because of that same regulation. Yes, that was a private. Tougaloo was a private school. Right. At least it was then. And and so that uh, that was is exactly right. The state board could not regulate uh, who came to give a speech at Tougaloo. Well, uh, you know, I, I was just going to say, here you were. With Aaron Henry, and you had this peaceful, you know, just gathering and, and so forth. Talk a little bit, of, I guess, in context, because you probably looked at what happened over the weekend in Oxford, and you probably could look at it with historical eyes, but also with a fresh perspective. What, what are some of your thoughts on what you saw happened in, in Oxford this weekend? Well, let me preface this by saying I know my friends in Mississippi, and I know how people there don't like to hear an outsider like me comment on the state. So right. I, I had some of those same feelings when I was growing up there. I was proud that the that those players knelt to protest the, the Confederate thing outside. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, that in that years and years ago, back when I was a kid, uh, something like that never would have happened at in Mississippi, and and today I believe the attitude of most of the state is vastly better and different than it was when when I was growing up there. So all of that is is for the good. Uh, but at the same time, we 
every year we see, not just in Mississippi, but somewhere in, in America, a throwback to the distant past. And so I think those old ways are going to die hard, and it will take a long time to to finally be a colorblind colorblind nation. Yeah, we saw it recently, I guess, with the, the editor over in Alabama that eventually just walked away from the paper. But yeah, we saw that. I mean, you do. It pops back up a little bit. But I, you're right. I think the world has changed considerably, and I think it's changing in a good direction. Um, you were bit, I mean, it's it's amazing, though. You were kind of right in the middle of a lot of history because you joined the Meredith March, the March Against Fear. You were in the middle of that. Where did you, you pick it up? In Canton, or did you go to st- pick it up in Tougaloo? No, or? no. I, I want to be uh, be uh, accurate. I I saw it as it went through Canton, but okay. Danny and I went uh, went to the Tougaloo okay. rally uh, in support of that march. That was on the the day before they marched into Jackson to the uh, Capitol building. But Danny and I did go to the rally, which was a huge event there at Tougaloo. And in the memoir, I describe uh, what that was like uh, to, to be there. So yeah, I wanted. Even doing something like that in that era took a little bit of courage because the state sovereignty commission uh, had its snoops out there taking down the license plate of every single car that came anywhere near Tougaloo that night. And so you knew you were on the enemy's list if you did something, uh, gave, gave even that small amount of support, meaning just just attending a rally where we wanted to be there to support the cause uh, but we we were not in the march itself. Right. Uh, 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 that uh, that would be going too far. But I was at least at the rally to support the march. You did go hear Dr. King was up in Chicago, I believe. Right. I did. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't go there for that purpose, but I was at a student conference in Chicago in August of '66, and the conference was on the urban problems and the slums there in Chicago, which was a severe severe problem. And during the course of that week, a student from the seminary, uh, Chicago Theological Seminary, asked me and one other guy to go with him to the Liberty Baptist Church in the south side of Chicago to to hear Dr. Martin Luther King. And I wanted to hear him. I had never heard him before. I said, I'm going to do this. So it was it was not part of the conference. It was just a... Uh, uh, an adventure of our own. We got on the subway of the elevated train. We went down there. We were probably a handful of white faces in a sea of black faces in a huge church that held at least a thousand. And he, after many other speakers, he did come and and stood at the at the uh, podium where the preacher would stand. There was no introduction, by the way. He just came out. It was like everyone would know who he was. He needed no introduction. So he came out, and in a very low-key way began, of course, he had a suit on, a white shirt, uh, tie, and he began by saying he had just come from the negotiations with Mayor Daley, uh, Richard Daley, the Mm -hmm. first Mayor Daley, and uh, this was over the marches and what it would take to end the marches, and those were mainly about employment but also housing, the housing discrimination that was rampant back then. And so he uh, he explained uh, what the mayor had offered. It was just like everyone in the room was going to be his advisor uh, to say, oh, take this, don't take that. Yes, okay, we see what, where the negotiation is. It was an amazing commentary on the 60s that a, a room full of people would be let in on where the negotiation stood. But that's that's exactly what happened. Then someone uh, named Monroe Sharp interrupted him, and he, uh, Dr. King, let him come up and give a speech. And he, he was very much, Monroe Sharp was very much against uh, any negotiation, uh, saying, uh, "No, we don't need any of the white people. Uh, we we ought to do this on our own." And then uh, he only got polite applause. Then uh, Dr. King came back and said that uh, when the Pharaoh wanted to keep the is uh, the uh, Israelites uh, under oppression that he found the Pharaoh found ways to have them fight among themselves? Well, that got a big, that got a lot of laughter and a lot of applause. Eventually, uh, Dr. King uh, said, "We're going to have another march tomorrow," 
and it, it would leave from that very church and then go to some, I don't remember where now, probably either Cicero or one of the other uh, Gage Park, I think it might have been. And then and then he, uh, he, he lapsed into, not lapsed, that's the wrong word, he moved into the things we remember him most for, that, that remarkable cadence that he had that could encourage you, inspire you, and it was uh, justice is on our side, freedom is on our side, uh, we must be peaceful, always peaceful, and we shall eventually overcome. It was very moving. I, I'm not saying it, those were the exact words that he used, but that's that was the that was the way I took it. And I must say, I thought he was the the best orator in my entire life that I've ever seen. Uh, and and then and because of he wound up giving his life for this cause, I think he may be the most important American in my lifetime to, to have made such a difference in our country. We're going to take a we're going to, we got to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be right back. I tell you what, it's a time for the final break, and when we return, we'll wrap up our conversation with Judge and Author William Alsop. And if you have any questions or comments, you can call at eight seven seven MPB ring, or you can email me at marshall at mpbonline.org. Stay tuned. This is now you're talking on MPB Think Radio. Can't get to a radio? Well, don't worry. MPB Think and Music Radio are available online and on our MPB public media app. It's simple. Just log on to our website at mpbonline.org to get started. This is MPB Think Radio. Donating your change to MPB just got better. Visit mpbonline.org slash support. Change donors are now change sustainers with instant benefits like passport streaming video and home delivery of our fine-tuning program. If you'd like to give a set amount every day, now you can. Donations are charged directly to your card, which means you can earn points and a tax deduction. Visit mpbonline.org slash support and become an MPB change sustainer today. You're listening to Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. Happy Monday. Look, today we've been talking with United States District Judge and author William Alsop about his new memoir, One Over. And Judge, I tell you what, um, I'm looking forward to reading it. I have not gotten the book yet, but I will as soon as I can. It'll get in my hands. But let's talk a little bit about it. And what, what made you decide to just say, I'm going to sit down and write this memoir? In, in about 2011, I reflected on my uh, years there in Mississippi growing up, 1945 to 67, or yeah, 67. And I thought in a few years, there won't be many of us left, maybe none of us left to tell that story of what it was like, what it felt like to be in that oppressive system, even on the white side of the equation. And I thought I would, uh, and I thought I was witness to history enough that I had some interesting memories to relate and in a small way I was on the enough on the fringe of the civil rights movement that I thought a few stories like the Aaron Henry story would be worth worth putting down on paper I want to be very clear I was I am not holding myself out as any kind of hero I was not one of those people who whose life was in danger and who really deserve uh, praise uh, for their heroic work in the civil rights movement. I don't put myself in that category. But at the same time, I was won over to the right side of history by those by that era and the events that took place then and the moral force of the civil rights era. And I think uh, in, my, in telling my own story, I can tell the story of at least some of white America and the white Mississippi and how we were won over to the right side of history, uh, not just in the last 10 years, but way back then when it made much more of a difference and it was not so easy to do. So anyway, that's why I wrote it. And I, it's, uh, 
we'll see. I, I think it's a nice little niche of a story. It's not going to be a bestseller, but it it's a story, I think, that deserved to be told by somebody, and I wound up doing it. You're going to be here this Thursday, February 28th, at Mississippi State University for the Lamar Connerly Governance Lecture. Talk a little bit. How did you... um. How did you get contacted and get this set up? The, the school wanted me to come and give a talk, uh, I guess just as an alumni, and I, of course, uh, am willing to do that. And it turned out that the book was coming out at the same time by coincidence. So the, part of the uh, days that I'm going to be there at State this week, I will give that lecture at 2 o'clock at the – at the Union Ballroom, Lamar Connery Governance Forum is the name of it. So I think anyone's welcome to come. I, if anybody, any listener wanted to come, I'm gonna, I'm basically gonna go through the Aaron Henry story and so, show some slides and uh, uh, about what, uh, in more detail about how that all unfolded. Are you planning a book tour as well? Well, this is, I guess, part of the book tour. I'll sign some copies of the uh, the memoir. It's uh, Mississippi State has received uh, a number of copies, and, and so people are just now beginning to get their copies. I just saw yesterday. I just received my own copy yesterday. So this is hot off the press. It's not a. It can be purchased through Amazon. It's a, distributed by a national distributor. It's a you know legitimate. Uh, thing by New South Books in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, but they, it is available right, if you ordered it now, you could get it uh, within a few days. But I think they're going to have a few copies at Mississippi State. Yeah, I'm going to do a similar thing at Ole Miss in April. Uh, then out here in California, there are at least three events that I will give some talks and sign some copies. And uh, We'll see. I don't know. That's about as much time as I have for a book tour. I How about to uh, say your your docket's pretty full, so it is. It is very full. Well, I, I tell you what, I appreciate you. In light of that, I appreciate you taking the time to to talk to us today. Really look forward to the book. Of course, it's one over. Uh, Judge, really, thank you. It's been an honor to get to meet you, Marshall. Thank you, and I say uh, good morning to all of your good listeners there in Mississippi. So long and thanks for letting me come. Well, we'll see y'all soon. Thank you so much and want to thanks once again for coming in. We want to thank our joining us today, our guest, United States District Judge and author William Alsop for sharing his story too. And if you missed part of the show or want to hear past episodes, you can listen to our podcast at mpbonline.org slash now you're talking. Now you're talking is a production of MPB Think Radio and is produced by the incredible, amazing, wonderful, fantastic Michelle McAdoo. Hey, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Health and Fit with Dr. Josie Bidwell and join us next week for more Now You're Talking at 10 a.m. here on MPB Think Radio. Y'all have a great week.